Okay. Um, I want to deal with with a few issues. Obviously, the the topic of what's going on today goes. We we, we can go all night, and I'm going to try not to do that. Um, let me start by saying that the what happens next is going to be very very limited and kind of categorical for two reasons. One is that I'm going to limit to stuff that I can actually say in public. But more importantly, on the basis of an, an adage that goes back to uh, to the 19th century to a, a chief of the German general staff named, named von Moltke and repeated in, in, in varied forms over, over the century, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, neither does any projection. So looking forward more than a couple of days is... Uh, would be unprofessional. I can give you some idea of what we're looking at, but I, I, I can't go much beyond that. But let's go back to um, to what happened on Simchat Torah on October 7th in the morning. Uh, what went wrong? And a lot went wrong. What went right? Um, because a lot of stuff did go right, and it's lost in, in the massive tragedy of what happened on that day and, and, and shortly afterwards. Uh, and what's been going on sort of since then. Who are we dealing with? And that falls into some of the category of what went wrong and where where are we today and sort of looking forward to in the next few days. So as we all know, on Shabbat morning, on Simchat Torah, on October 7th at 6.30 in the morning, uh, Hamas launched a massive attack against southern Israel. And the first sort of response that we're getting in the commentary is that it was the result of a huge intelligence failure. Yeah. Uh, do you want to listen to a Zoom on intelligence or what's going on in Israel? Just... Yes, please. Thank you for offering me that. It, it, just, it, just, it, just, it just started. Some guy who's in the outside of here. Am I... Uh, I just found it. Go ahead. Okay. So huge intelligence failure. And there was an intelligence failure. There's no question. And of course, the fact that it happened on the Gregorian date of the day after the Yom Kippur War, right? The Yom Kippur War in the Hebrew calendar was Yom Kippur, but it was October 6th, 1973. So 50 years and a day after uh, the Yom Kippur War, the, the parallels of the intelligence failure seem to be Almost automatic. It's like, you know, history repeating itself. And I want to address that because there was an intelligence failure, but the failure of that morning had very little to do with intelligence. Now, if we go back to the Yom Kippur War, the intelligence failure was critical because the, the armies being unprepared for that because of the intelligence failure meant that the reserves were not mobilized in advance of the war. In 1973, the non-mobilization of the reserves was critical because on October 6th, on Yom Kippur, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the joint armies, combined armies of Egypt and Syria, launched a massive invasion of Israel. And just to give you some quick numbers to give you a sense of what that meant, on the Golan Heights, the Israeli army was outnumbered nearly 10 to 1 in tanks. On the Suez Canal, there were 436 Israeli soldiers attacked by 20,000 Egyptians. So the absence of reserves there 
was absolutely critical in the first few days of the war, leaving a stripped-down regular army. And for those who are not aware of the structure of the IDF, just briefly, the IDF's bulk force is reserves. Okay, more reservists were called up. Three times as many reservists were called up in the past week as made up, make up our regular army. Reservists are people who did their three years in the army or have a long A month out of every year, they serve. Yes. Or means you're okay. making like now to be part of a regular army. Right. So the regular army, the standing army of Israel, makes up roughly 10% of the total mass force that Israel can mobilize. Okay, I don't want to go into all the um, all the qualitative issues involved there. Let's just stick with the numbers for a moment. And in any event, in on Yom Kippur, the fact that the reserves weren't called up left the standing army, the regular army, heavily outnumbered by the mass attack by both both Egypt and Syria. This past event of a little over a week ago should have been handled by the regular army. 1,500 Hamas terrorists should have not, should not have succeeded overwhelmingly against a regular army division, which is what is holding the Gaza border. The division at full strength is about 10,000 men. Now, granted, the Gaza division is under strength, but still, even 5,000 men should evil, easily have dealt with the threat. And when I say easily dealt with, I want, to, I want to put this in military terms. It doesn't mean that they would have had no successes whatsoever. Okay, there's no such thing as a purely, perfectly clean military operation. That's only in, 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 in legends and movies. They would have had successes. And, and I say this with the certainty of a professional and with the tragedy of a human being, they would have killed people, they would have committed atrocities, but the numbers would have been much, 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 much smaller than what we saw, and the time frame also would have been smaller. However, they caught the Gaza division and the whole IDF unprepared to deal with them, and that raises an interesting question of why. The first and maybe most fundamental error, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm right now in the middle of writing an article on the subject, was a total over-reliance on technology. And this is a, a, a field that I've dealt with for many, many years. It's one that I've railed against uh, in the IDF for decades. And here, full disclosure, I'm a low-tech guy. I navigate with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Um, I wrote the navigation. I trained. Israeli troops and, and officers and special forces and land navigation. Well, the Sunset Series, the Tel Aviv, they always have somebody talking. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yes. I'm not hearing you. Go ahead. Continue, please. Okay. Technology is important. Technology needs to be used. But what happened here was a classic misuse and over-reliance on technology. It starts with the building of a sophisticated, smart barrier, a wall, a fence with concrete abutments, 
with an underground concrete uh, barrier, primarily to stop the tunnels that had been used over the past number of years uh, for terrorists to enter into Israel, at an investment of 3.8 billion shekel with sensors, with radar, with sonar. This is a barrier that could do everything but make coffee. And maybe it could make coffee as well. And this $3.8 billion barrier was broken in dozens upon dozens of places by tractors. Nobody on this side considered the possibility that this super, super sophisticated barrier fence could be overrun by a bunch of people in tractors. But it was okay because it was backed up with fire. But what kind of fire? We had a, another super sophisticated system called Ro'eh Yoreh in Hebrew, meaning it sees and it fires. Automatic weapons with sensors that could be remote controlled by operators sitting in front of cameras at a command center. And as soon as anybody came near the fence, the sensors would pick them up. The operators would, using joysticks, would bring the weapons around. Star Wars, in effect. And not have to risk a single soldier along that terribly dangerous fence. Hamas, using drones of a quality that you can probably buy on AliExpress for about 10 bucks, took out this super sophisticated system by flying the drones over the sensors and dropping the equivalent of a hand grenade on top of the sensors, completely paralyzing the entire automatic technological defense line of the Gaza Strip. Relying heavily on that technology, the troops that were there, not, not in firing positions, but in outposts, were caught completely by surprise. The result was that within less than an hour, 1,500 terrorists had swarmed into the what is called the Gaza envelope, uh, including landing on and driving into the huge rage party outside of Beiri, and we've seen the results. But what happened to the command and control? Well, they also went into and took the divisional command base. Now, the divisional command base was only a few kilometers from the Gaza border. I will tell you, and you don't have to trust me, you can look this up anywhere. Nobody puts a divisional command center a couple of kilometers from the enemy. It should be way back in the rear, commanding from the rear. But it's Gaza. It's nothing to worry about. That's all the bad news. I'm not going to go into the tragedies and the atrocities. I think you've all seen them, and we don't need to go into the graphics. Uh, one thing we can be very, very clear on, everything that was done on this side of the border, every atrocity was done by plan. It was done by design. This was not the, not that it matters, but it was not the excess of the euphoria of victory. And anybody who's ever who's been watching Hamas for the past few decades, as I have closely, knows that they did nothing 
that weekend that they hadn't done before, just not in the quantity that they did it. Murdering children, killing babies in their cribs, killing babies in the car seats of their cars, they've done it all before. So people who are shocked by what happened simply haven't been paying attention. So that's the bad news. The good news, if you can use that term in, in the context of what happened, is that Hamas's original plan was to take towns that included Ashkelon and Kiryat Gat. Uh, you can look these up on the map. Ashkelon is consider is north of the Gaza Strip, and Kiryat Gat is considerably north of the Gaza, Gaza Strip. The best way I can describe it is just outside the Tel Aviv metropolitan area. They failed in both of those cases, but more, more importantly, they planned to hold the places they took. I'm talking about the Kibbutzim, the Moshavim in the Gaza envelope, as well as Derot and Ofakim. They planned to hold them for as long as 30 days. That was their plan. Within about 24 hours of the beginning of their attack, they were essentially wiped out. By 24 hours after the attack began, they were holding out in a couple of places, largely because they were holding hostages there. In other words, not because they were out fighting the Israeli forces, but the Israeli forces were operating with hostage, with hostage situations, and that, of course, takes longer. And in those cases, all the hostages were rescued. In other words, the, the pause worked as it should work uh, for the ultimate defeat of the terrorists and the rescue of the hostages. By Sunday evening, they were all gone, dead or captured, and those who had escaped, who had escaped back to Gaza with hostages. So on the one hand, the system suffered terrible operational failures based on weak and untenable concepts. The troops and their commanders in the field performed brilliantly and not surprisingly. Uh, on top of that, we should add, there were a few of the kibbutzim where the security forces on the kibbutz themselves responded quickly enough and they prevented the terrorists from actually getting into them. So we should take some solace, I think, in understanding that Hamas, with all of its unexpected uh, success on the day of the attack, and, I, and again, I leave the massive human tragedy aside, uh, ultimately was, was defeated roundly by the IDF, and I think that's important for us to understand as we go into the next phase uh, that's going to happen over the next few days, I believe. That's what happened on Saturday. We should keep in mind that part of the failure of the intelligence had to do with a misunderstanding. And here, um, I actually just posted something yesterday on my Facebook page of something that I, I, I wrote a few years ago, never published, but, but written a few years ago. And the misunderstanding of how organizations like Hamas can actually look moderate without being moderate because we would like to think that they are. When Hamas took over Gaza in 2006, 2007, they became the ruling power in Gaza. And as the ruling power, 
they also took on the responsibility for the population. Now, the minute they did that, their position, their 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 structure had to change. They couldn't be a purely military organization anymore. They had to become a political and administrative organization as well, and they did that. The error in Western thinking, and I include Israeli thinking, was in, in believing that that now took precedence over their primary goal, which, by the way, is very easy to understand. You just have to read their charter, which is to destroy Israel and wipe out the Jews. That's a really hard thing to internalize. There are people who spend their lives wanting to destroy us and kill us. Why? Because we are. Not because of what we do, not because of our policies. And this doesn't mean that all, our, all of our policies are good or that I agree with all of them, uh, that we don't make mistakes. But it doesn't matter. They want to wipe us out because of who we are. That's hard to internalize. It's much nicer to believe that, well, you know, now that they have a population to take care of and they want to improve their economic situation, we can actually reason with these people. And what was clear to some of us, and I was one of them, is that just because they have now taken on the mantle of rule, they have done it in order to improve their chances of succeeding in their in their overall goals, which is to wipe us out. In other words, they're not ruling in order to rule, they're ruling in order to gain further power. And the key word, or the key phrase that I wrote in this is that prudence should not be confused with moderation. The fact that they've become better managers doesn't mean that they've become Western liberal Democrats. And unfortunately, this past week we saw the result of that. Having said all of that, they made a huge mistake. And when I say they, Iran was behind it. Somebody asked me last week, does that mean that Iran told them to do it or that they went to Iran and Iran agreed to it? My answer is it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who the, the sort of initial um, instigator was. Iran got on board and Iran was behind it. And it's my firm belief that the plan included Hezbollah stepping in once we got fully involved in Gaza. And here, let me just say it parenthetically, that in 2006, when we fought a 34-day war with, with Hezbollah, people often forget that that started with an operation in Gaza after Gilad Shalit was captured by Hamas. So to get the chronology straight, Gilad Shalit was captured. We went into Gaza. Hezbollah started its operation up north. And because we didn't want to call up reserves then, we shifted our forces, we called off the Gaza operation, and we moved it up north, and we left Hamas to its own devices. I believe that that was part of the plan this time as well. It was a major part of the plan. But it was based on something that turned out to be a blatant error in assessment on the part of Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas. This attack came at the height of months upon months of an extremely divisive demonstration period. And here I'm not gonna get into who's the divisive and who's at fault. It doesn't matter for our purposes. We had a country divided. We had demonstrations from two diametric opposite positions, no real dialogue, no real discourse, a divided society. 
people in the, in the anti-judicial reform, anti-government demonstrations, declaring that they wouldn't serve in the reserves. Uh, from, from outsiders looking in, the country is tearing its, itself apart. And I'm not sure that it wasn't. I don't believe that it was, but I'm not sure that it wasn't. The Iranians can only see this, as, only, as anybody can, through their own eyes and in their own image. And knowing full well that if the same type of demonstrations had been going on for months in Iran, if an outside force launched an attack on Iran during that period, the odds were near certainty that the demonstrators would use that attack as an opportunity to overthrow the government and overthrow the regime. Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran believed that that would happen here as well. They would launch an attack. At best, from their perspective, the demonstrators would then overthrow the government, bring down the regime, and they would be able to divide and conquer. At worst, from their perspective, the demonstrators and their divisiveness would prevent the government to respond decisively to the Hamas attack. Of course, what happened was the diametric opposite of what they anticipated. Already on Saturday morning, the leaders of the protest movement declared the protest is on hold until further notice. We call upon all of those who are called to reserves to appear immediately for deployment and instantaneously the divisiveness disappeared. This, I believe, came as a tremendous shock to, show, to Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. And that is one of the reasons, not the only one by, by any means, but one of the reasons that Hezbollah up north, and I live up north, I, I hear the planes and helicopters and the occasional booms here on a regular basis. Um, Hezbollah is rattling sabers. It's launching raids that are and attacks that are meant to be military irritants. And I, I emphasize military. People are getting killed. It's not just an irritant. It's, it's tragic. But I don't believe they're going to go beyond that point because they know full well that their assumptions of this operation were false. In another grand distinction from 2006, where we didn't want to call up reserves, here immediately when the whole thing started, we mobilized the reserves. Over 300,000 reservists were called up in the fastest reserve call up in Israel's history since 1948. Uh, and with the, all the force sitting in the south waiting to go into Gaza, there's another huge force up north facing Hezbollah. That's the situation as, where we, as to where we are today. One other point to make, uh, because I think it's important, Unexpectedly, I think, for many, the United States and the Biden administration have become, up until now, and I'm not going to make predictions, so anybody wants to drag me into American politics, don't bother, I'm not going there. But up until tonight, the Biden administration has shown itself to be the staunchest supporters of Israel in crisis of any American administration in history. The rhetoric of the administration 
and I don't agree with with 100% of everything they've done. I'm talking about in the macro. Uh, the speech that Biden made last week, and I'll, I'll break it down for you, the key, the key words of what he said and what he didn't say that were so important. He said that Israel has the obligation to respond. This is qualitatively different from every American president over the past decades who has said that Israel has the right to defend itself. Israel has an obligation to defend itself, just like every other other nation state, to say to state as if it's questionable, as if as if it's conditional, that Israel has the right to defend itself is no friend of Israel. It's like saying Jews have the right to be alive. Thank you very much. He said Israel has the obligation to respond, qualitatively different from anything that's been said by an American president in decades. He notably did not use the word restraint, something that is a constant refrain in American responses to any Israeli action, and again, for decades. And here I want to make clear, I'm not talking about this administration or another. I'm going back far. And although he didn't use, he didn't say Iran explicitly, he did the, the following day. He said, to any country or organization that wants to take advantage of the situation, I have one word, don't. Now, let's be clear. When he said any country or any organization, he wasn't talking about Peru as the country, and he wasn't talking about the Boy Scouts of America as the organization. He was talking about Iran and Hezbollah, and they knew it. And to make sure they understood it, America sent an aircraft carrier task force that's already here and another one that's on the way. Those are significant, not only words, but actions that work to Israel's advantage, particularly vis-a-vis -vis Iran and Hezbollah. doesn't matter. Hamas will deal with by ourselves. Last but not least, what are we looking at? If the government and the leadership are to be believed, and they've gone way out on a limb, so hopefully they are to be believed, this operation is going to go in and essentially destroy Hamas as an organization. Now, Ehud Barak, who I have no particular use for, made a statement today that was true and irrelevant, which is that you can't destroy Hamas as an idea, and that's true, but it's irrelevant because you can't destroy it as an organization. I'll give you a, a an apt and interesting analogy. In May 1945, the, the Allies defeated Nazi Germany and destroyed it. They did not destroy Nazism, as we well know, but they destroyed Nazi Germany. Hamas as an organization can be destroyed. And the amount of force that's being mounted against it is enormous on our side. With the very, very important statement already from the beginning, that we are in a war, this is not an operation, it's not a response, it's not a round. And as such, and we've seen the indication of this, it doesn't mean that we are going to violate international law or international military ethics. We are going to hold to them, but we are not going to follow our own interpretation of them, which is to be super extra specially careful which is what we have done in the past. And just to clarify the point, and I'll, I'll conclude with this and give you a chance to ask questions, up until this past week, for the past few decades, 
we have been fighting what I have always referred to as luxury war. Now, war is never a luxury for the people in it. But luxury war, as a hyphenated term, means that we had such overwhelming superiority. The amount of overall damage that the adversary was willing and capable of doing at any given time was relatively low. And what that meant was that we could be extremely magnanimous and extremely cautious in our operations. For example, and this was well known over the past decade plus, if we fired a missile at a target and non-combatants showed up in the target zone, we would divert the missile into an open field and not hurt the combatants. What that meant was that that target was not being destroyed. And in luxury war, you can say, okay, it wasn't destroyed. We'll get it tomorrow. We'll get it the next day. We are now no longer doing that. And to be very, very clear, combatants in a war zone around a military target cannot be intentionally targeted, but their presence does not protect the target. The target's presence endangers them. That's the Geneva Convention. That is international law. We are now beginning to adhere to an international law to the misfortune, I would say, of civilians, of non-combatants who happen to be around targets. By ordering and advising the population of northern Gaza to move south, we are also in adherence with international law and the Geneva Convention, and they're moving out, and the numbers I'm seeing now are in the five, 600,000 range. They're moving out of the combat zone will greatly facilitate our ability to deal with Hamas in that zone, which is why Hamas is terribly frightened by the idea of the civilians not being there. I think we're looking at a ground operation sometime in the next 48 to 72 hours. I'm not going to sign off on that. There are too many dynamics, but that's what I believe. Um, and, uh, and, and from there, we'll see. Jonathan, what role do the Saudi negotiations have? Um, given that this operation was planned well over a year ago, I'm going to say minor. Um, I don't believe that they chose this date based on that. I think that the breakdown of the negotiations as a result was a secondary benefit as far as they're concerned, not an objective. Okay, thank you so, so much. Um, thank you so much. I think that your talk was just eye-opening for so many of us. And I'm a journalist and I'm following this every day and every waking moment of my life. And I still learned things in your talk. So we are just so grateful to have you. Um, I want to now open for questions. I have a couple of my own questions, but I'll hold them at the, at the end so that we can get questions from our community. Um, whoever has a question, please write it in the chat. Uh, and I will take care of it as I don't actually see any questions in the chat. Okay, we do have a question right here. Um, and we're going to get to as many of them as we possibly can. Elliot, I don't know how you did it, but you managed to compress so much into such a short time. And you are very concise. You're excellent. So I have a question here from Yael Schwarzman. Especially yes. considering the reports of widespread logistical issues, why do you think the ground invasion will begin in the next 48 to 72 hours? Okay, so first of all, uh, there are logistical issues for, for a variety of reasons. 
uh, and I, I think the reasons are important for us to understand. One, as I said before, this was the fastest reserve call-up in Israel's history. Even when call-ups are done slowly, and I've, I've been a, an officer since 1985, and I've been in more than my share of, uh, how can I say, routine and emergency call-ups, logistics always lag. It's just, it's the nature of the beast. Under the best of circumstances, logistics never catch up. Uh, in other words, you never have as much as you need. You never have as much as you want. Um, having said that, the IDF's logistics has fallen, have fallen somewhat, how can I say, below par over the past 15 years. That's a whole talk in and of itself and the reasons for it. Uh, it's been called out by a number of people, most notably a retired general named uh, Brick, who's spoken quite forcefully on the subject for a number of years. Having said all of that, an army goes to war with what it has, not with what it wants to have. And there's adequate logistics to go to war. Uh, what's missing, and here I can tell you, there have been many, many cases over, over the course of history, not just in Israel, where soldiers have been uh, short on fuel, ammunition, food, other supplies, and I'm, in, I'm including the U.S. Army in World War II, which was probably the, the most heavily logistically backed army in, in history. Um, we'll go to war with what we have. And given that ultimately the forces that go in will be a fraction of the forces called up, I believe that what's needed will be pushed to them I don't believe, I, I know for certainty, we push them as a priority, uh, even at the risk of leaving others somewhat shorthanded. So we'll, we, we will go, as I said, with, with what we've got. Why do I believe it'll happen over the next few days? There are a whole bunch of reasons that I'll, I'll just mention a few. One is um, that I believe that our, our lease on action by the world is going to run out. Um, I... I believe that that the uh, I'm going to say this very coarsely, but but honestly, I think the images of dead Jews has a very short half life. Um, we're already beginning to see wavering among support that was there a week ago. Second, we've got a massive army called up in reserves. They can't stay called up forever for economic reasons, for social reasons. And for morale reasons, an army that's standing around waiting to go, morale begins to decline. And last but not least, there's a delicate balance. The damage that we're doing to Hamas from the air is massive, but that also begins to go into di diminishing returns. So all of those issues sort of drain into 24, 48, 72-hour window that I think we've got now. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, moving into the next question from Andrew Avakian. Um, can Israel protect its ex existence without bombing Iranian nuclear reactor? And I just want to say that there are specific people here, myself included, that have a lot of questions about Iran's nuclear uh, capabilities. And That's if they're talk, ready... Right? 
if they're ready, if they have it, there's a lot of, I know that there's a lot of questions outside of that. So if you could just address that in one swoop. Okay. So from all indications, Iran does not have a nuclear weapons capability. Let me phrase it differently. An offensive nuclear weapons capability. And let me explain what I mean by that. An offensive nuclear weapons capability means A, multiple bombs, and B, multiple delivery systems to deliver those bombs. In other words, in order to use nuclear weapons today, unlike the only time they've ever been used in history, which was at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, remember that when America dropped the atomic bombs in Japan, it was in a non-nuclear world. Okay, for, for all intents and purposes, when the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, there were no more nuclear weapons on Earth. Today, that is not the case. A country cannot launch a nuclear offensive with all of its nuclear arsenal. It has to keep some in reserve in order to deter a counterstrike against itself. So if Iran has a bomb or two, it doesn't have enough to use against Israel. Now, I don't know how many it does need. That's that's an open debate. There's a lot of discussion on it, but one or two isn't enough. All indicators are they do not yet have deliverable nuclear weapons. In other words, they are still not a nuclear weapons country. Under those circumstances, A, Israel doesn't need to use nuclear weapons. B, if Israel strikes against Iran, yes, of course, its nuclear capabilities would have to be one of the major targets. Uh, it's my belief that we're not going to do that until the absolute last minute. And I think that part of the message of the two American aircraft carriers, and let's not forget the two in the Eastern Mediterranean, are in addition to the ones that America has in the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. So Iran is, is essentially surrounded by at least three or four American aircraft carriers. Uh, let's not be overly um, optimistic and be, and try to bite off more than we can chew. A two-front war, in other words, if Hezbollah comes in, a two-front war is manageable. It's going to be extremely difficult. A three-front war, including Iran, will be even more difficult. There's no reason whatsoever for us to initiate it. Having said that, if we get caught in a multi-front war, whatever restraints that we're putting on ourselves now in Gaza are going to be reduced even more. Uh, and, I, and I'll give you the, 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 the simple phrase that I've used teaching my military and college students over the past couple of decades in, in decision-making and ethics. If somebody's holding a loaded gun to your head and they say, I want to kill you, first of all, believe them. And second of all, understand that they have simplified your decision-making. Everything that mattered to you about 10 minutes ago doesn't matter anymore. Only one thing matters, and that's to get that loaded gun away from your head. So all, many of the things that, that I've talked about and a lot of the stuff that's going on in discussion around in Israel today, which is totally legitimate, gets reduced more and more the, the more the threat increases. And to the point, if it comes, if push comes to shove, we use whatever force at our disposal. But I, I believe that's way, way down the road from where we're sitting right now.
Thank you. I think that you may have quelled a lot of fears. What this is a question coming from Mark Schwartz. What is the likelihood of any other countries entering the war? And I know that you mentioned Iran, but I think many people have a vision of this expanding and, and almost becoming a World War III situation. Can you speak to that? Okay. Um, it could be a world situation, and I think that's why China is trying to push Iran into it. I think we need to understand that there are at least five primary mischief makers in the world today. Uh, the first tier are Russia and China. Right below them, but immediately sort of in the, in the same group as Iran. After that are North Korea and Venezuela. And they're all talking to each other. I don't like terms like axis of evil, but they're all talking to each other. And at the, with that, they all have one common adversary, and that's the United States of America. So from the Chinese perspective, from the Russian perspective, from the Iranian perspective, to say nothing of the Korean and the Venezuelan perspective, having America running around dealing with multiple problems around the world works to all of their advantage. So I don't rule out the possibility. I don't. This is not a prediction. It's a possibility that this conflict gets out of hand. The Iranians step in by calculation, or I would say by miscalculation, that gives the Chinese an opportunity to try to go after Taiwan. It gives the North Koreans an opportunity to go up to go against South Korea. Uh, allows Venezuela to make trouble in South America. Russia is already making enough trouble, but I, but but Poland is is worried for good reason. Um, let me add to that that America, with all due respect, is at the weakest point military militarily that it's been since 1939, and in terms of relative power, obviously, and being stretched into four or five different areas at once. Maybe, maybe beyond its capability to deal with simultaneously. So that's a scenario that could certainly happen. I'm not predicting it, but it's it's well within the um, call it the the, the frame of, of the strategically possible. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm gonna. I want to actually come back to that. I'm gonna take another question, but I, I would love to know what the in what would be their motivation. Why would these five want to? wreak havoc on the world what's what's their bone to pick with the united states what's the you know if you could just take that quickly okay so look after the fall of the soviet union i'm going to try to do this really quickly and not make it into a long history lesson uh but after the fall of the soviet union there were basically two overall philosophies in international strategy and international relations one was embodied in a book written by francis fukuyama called The End of History and the Last Man, in which he posited that that's it, this is the end of history, no more war. It, it was kind of a secular messianic view of the world. Uh, the other was a book, an article, and then later a book written by Sam Huntington from Harvard uh, called The Clash of Civilizations, in which he basically said, okay, the Russian, the Soviet-American conflict has ended. 
but conflict is endemic to the world. Let's see where the other fault lines could possibly be. Uh, frankly, Huntington was right. I was, I was always a Huntington guy. Um, but after the Cold War, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there, the world became an American world. And all the other countries in the world, all the other, what had, had been powers and superpowers had faded into a secondary position. Today, those imperial wannabes, because we're talking about empire in one form or another, know that the team to beat is the United States of America. In other words, this is less about, it's not entirely not about style, lifestyle and political style and democracy. That's there as well. But it's, it's really an issue of power. And in order to become number one or some sort of conglomerate of number one, America needs to be knocked down. So America is the adversary. Uh, and th this is balance of power theory that goes back centuries. I mean, the theory itself isn't centuries old. The situation is centuries. Uh, so anything that can be done to weaken America, bring America down, works to the benefit of the countries that I mentioned before. Um, and whether or not they are natural enemies of America, they become situational enemies of America. And of course, Israel is its own, you know, is its own position, but you know, why, why should China care? Because of the American connection. Why does Iran care? Because Iran is, a, is an Islamo-fascist Nazi regime that hates Jews. Okay, thank you so much for taking that. Uh, we have a question from Zach Malis, or Malis. Is it typical in the IDF for reservists to have to provide their own equipment? Why aren't they issued vests and armor? Okay, so first of all, it is typical... And it's always been typical, not only in the reserves, uh, but one of the hidden, one of the great secrets of the IDF is that the civilian sector has been subsidizing the IDF forever. Anybody whose child goes into the army at age 18 is supplying them with stuff. I know that, that when my kids went into the army, before they went in, we went shopping to get all the stuff that the army wasn't going to provide them with, whether it was proper winter gear, whether it was all sorts of things that that a soldier needs, but are not part of the issue requirements of the IDF, um, and that's that's always been the case. The reserves have are an even worse in a worse position because the the budget battles that go on in the IDF. Go, are decided by officers who are in the regular army. And when the pie gets cut up, the reserves always get the smallest piece. Part of it is internal organizational politics, which is normal for any organization. And part of it is the reality that the regular army is there in perpetuity 24-7, and the reserves get called up for, for war periodically. So they don't feel it so to speak, on a day-to-day day -day basis. When something like this happens today, they find that the cupboard is bare. Okay, thank you. Um, it sounded like almost going going to college shopping as we, Americans, as we Americans know it. Except <laughs> with a, a, little bit, a little bit more of a life, life and death uh, consequence. Uh, right. 
are bulletproof vests and helmets standard in most armies? To what degree? How de how deep? Okay, first of all, helmets are standard. I don't know of, of any of a situation where where there are no helmets. Um, the vests are a mixed bag. And here I have to say that uh, technology is improving all the time. But I, I personally, as somebody who, who, who's been in the business for a while, um, I'm not convinced that heavy body armor is necessarily an overall advantage in combat. It is under certain circumstances. Don't, don't get me wrong. It's not. It, I'm not saying it's a useless piece of equipment. But given the alternatives between armor and ability to move with agility, um, it's a tough call. It's 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 not simple. Let's put it that way. And it doesn't. Let let's say that the jury is out among the professionals. Okay. Uh, thank you. So we have a question here from Mo Navon, which I actually think might be a wider question. I have a question related to his question. He says, Professor Moti Kedar from BIU says, Biden is pushing an agenda to placate the Islamists in his backyard. And Blinken is here to ensure that we enable Abbas to take over Gaza so that we move to agree to a two-state solution. Do you think the United States will force us to stop before we finish the job? My question, which I'm getting from a lot of people, is, is Netanyahu, did Netanyahu angle or in some way um, encourage such a provocation from Hamas? Not a question coming from me, but a question coming from a lot of listeners to my show. So I think the idea here is, can you speak to the political aspirations of the players in the game right now? So first of all, I, I know I know Professor Kedar. Uh, he's an extremely, extremely knowledgeable person. Uh, and I use I use him as an as an information resource. Um, I don't want to disparage him. He's something of a conspiracy theorist. And that's not my style. So I'll, I'll say it that way. Um, I don't think there's any question that America's interests and Israel's interests are not identical. It would be absurd to think the two countries have identical interests. And, but from there to say that he's doing it to placate Islamists, I think is a step. The Americans make no secret that they would like to see a negotiated two-state solution, and they see Abu Mazen as the partner. I personally don't, but I mean, my idea of democracy is not somebody who's in the whatever 15th year of his four-year term. Um, but that's what they've got, and that's what they're playing. And okay, I get it. I you know I don't see it, but I get it. Can they? force us to stop? No. Can they put pressure on us? Yes. And that's where the political game comes in. Um, because let's be serious. If we're still operating heavily on the ground in Gaza in two or three weeks, I'm talking about severe combat in two or three weeks, we're not getting the job done. 
And that was a mistake, by the way, that we made in 2006, that we let the, the, the war lag for seven weeks. If we're getting the job done in five or six days, and we need another two or three to get it done, we can obfuscate long enough to get it done. I don't see America at that at that point turning to us and saying, uh, if you don't stop, we're going to cut you off completely, cut off aid, and kiss you goodbye. It's It, it would be untenable from, from their point of view. So there's a lot of play in that. As far as Netanyahu being behind it and instigating it, I think, I think that's utter nonsense. Um, and here, full disclosure, without getting into politics, I'm not a Netanyahu fan. Yeah. Sorry about that. I'm not a Netanyahu fan, but I don't think he's the, the, the demon or the devil either. Um, what happened on Shabbat, Simchat Torah, Shmini Atzeret, as I said earlier, was planned by Hamas for well over a year. There are some who argue two years. They chose their date based on their own considerations. And and I don't think it's a coincidence that, that they chose uh, a Shabbat and the end of the holiday season. And I'll tell you why, by the way, psychologically, it was a, it was a very clever choice. We had, and they set up part of it. This was, a, a lot of it was their, was their doing. They created a situation where we were sure that something would happen during the holiday season. Everybody was on a high alert. Everybody was, you know, forces were, were there, particularly looking to, to the West Bank, to Judea and Samaria. But everybody was, was on alert for something to happen. And here we are. It's the last day of the holiday season and nothing has happened. And everybody was saying, we made it. We got through. It's done. And it wasn't. Um, the timing in that sense, tactically, was brilliant. I give them a lot of credit for their planning and execution. I don't believe they designed it all by themselves, but I think Iran had a lot to do with it. But their their the planning and execution was was on a very, very high level. I'm talking about the initial stages of it. Um, to say that, that Netanyahu somehow was behind it is fantasy, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you. We're going to move into a question from Yoktan. What was Hamas expecting to achieve, aside from mayhem, with this, and especially by holding the likes of Ashkelon, wouldn't it ultimately have been a suicide mission? Okay, so first of all, suicide missions are, are their, you know, their trade. Um, but no, I as I said earlier, I I think that they believed that they would drive a wedge into a divided Israeli society. They would find a military that was incapable of responding. That. Hezbollah would come in and join them, possibly Iran, um, other militias would come in and join them, and that divided Israel would essentially eat itself alive in the process, being unable to respond. They made a, a fatal error uh, from that, that perspective, but one that's very common in, in 
those kind of groups and regimes. So I think they were willing to, to be suicidal, but I really think that, that they had grander plans than that. Okay, great. I'm going to take two more questions. Um, I have, I'm going to ask about the hostages. So we have a question. How likely is it that the hostages, this question comes from Erica Jackson. How likely is it that the hostages will be able to be rescued and brought back? Wow. Um, I'm not optimistic. First of all, reports that I've seen, some of them are, are have been made semi-public. Many of the hostages are no longer alive. Uh, I, I, I don't want to go into numbers. I think they're, you know, the estimates are based on lots of things, but, but many of them are not alive. It would not surprise me, and I don't know this, but it would not surprise me that with the beginning of a ground offensive, there will be a parallel rescue operation. But let's be clear, the ground offensive itself will not be an, a rescue operation. It can't be. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and it, it's based on really, you know, tea leaf reading kind of estimates. I think that if we get 40 or 50 hostages out alive, it'll be a tremendous military success. Thank you. And we're going to move into a question that I think is on everyone's mind. In ethically... Uh, this question comes from Avita Lipkin. How would you respond to criticisms or reports of indiscriminate or carpet bombing by Israel in Gaza, cutting food, electricity, water supply, and that the 24-hour warning isn't enough for civilians in the north to get to safety? Um, and also uh, from me wondering if when making everyone leave the Gaza Strip and area, um, can't Hamas just get out of that area as well and, and save themselves? Okay, so first, well, let me start with the last one. They can, but I don't think they're going to. Because if we roll in there and take it over with no resistance, they're going to look really, really weak and they can't afford that. I also am willing to bet that we're watching them very, very closely. Uh, here, here let's, let's be clear on something, and I, and I think it's an important point. The intelligence failure that led to this was a, was a failure of what is known as strategic intelligence. And strategic intelligence failures typically, and this, this one is, falls into the same category, are failures of interpretation and extrapolation, not failures of gathering. Now, obviously, if you have a perfect picture, you can draw a perfect you know, estimate. That is radically different from the operational and tactical intelligence, which, by the way, we've been seeing over the past week and taking out their leaders. We know what's going on there because we're looking for them. So we have a very good sense of who's where and, and, and what's what. Uh, if they start withdrawing in any numbers, I think that we'll know. I'm not saying one or two of them or more aren't sneaking out, but we'll know it. Uh, and they're not going to escape so quickly. As far as the ethics are concerned, there is absolutely no ethical rule that says that we need to supply food, water, electricity to a hostile population unless you believe that Israel is still the occupying power in Gaza. 
Now, since I was there in 2005 when we pulled out of Gaza, I know we're not there. And the idea that Israel is, and I and I've, I've, I read this stuff and I laugh, well, Israel controls the borders of Gaza, so it's the same as occupation. Well, first of all, Egypt has one border that we don't control. And two, of course, we control the borders of Gaza. They're our borders. It's, it's, it's an absurd statement. It, it's like saying that uh, you know, the United States, whether it does or doesn't control the Mexican border, is controlling Mexico's border. No, it's, it's controlling or not controlling the American border. Uh, there's absolutely no rule anywhere that says that you have to provide anything to a hostile population. And by the way, let's also be clear on something else. And, and this is something that, that Biden said that's totally incorrect. The problem is Hamas, not the overwhelming majority. The population of Gaza are a bunch of innocents. Let me remind people that the population of Gaza overwhelmingly voted for Hamas, which has ruled them since 2006, 2007. And I'll throw something out that's an Elliott rule, and that is that nobody, no regime, stays in power for a long time, and this is a length of time now since 2006-7, without at least the tacit support of its population. If an overwhelming majority of the population is opposing the regime, the regime falls no matter how brutal it is. And we saw that with the fall of the regimes in, in, of, of the iron, behind the Iron Curtain, with the fall of the Soviet Union, how quickly they all collapsed, including Russia including the Soviet Union. We are following the laws of war in terms of population. We are strictly following the rules of the Fourth Geneva Convention. And we are, first of all, we are not carpet bombing. And here, here let me give you a very, very simple uh, analogy. The number of, the, the, the level of bomb, quantity of bombs that we've been dropping easily matches massive bomber raids of Germany in World War over Germany in World War II. And in those raids, and I'm talking about the cities, in a single raid, the death toll would range typically from 10 to 40,000. With everything that's gone on, if you can believe the Gaza Health Department, about 2,000 people have been killed. And it doesn't differentiate between Hamas fighters and non-combatants. So if we if we're carpet bombing on that level, why is the death toll so low? And the answer is we're being extremely discriminating in our in our attacks. They're not perfect. Bombs are bombs, and collapsed buildings are collapsed buildings. And I don't say it lightly, and I don't say it with any glee. But it's a reality of the war that they brought upon themselves. And I also want to remind us, aside from the fact that they voted Hamas into power, look back at the pictures of Gaza on that Saturday a week and a half ago as the hostages were being brought into the streets. And note that the streets were not empty with people disassociating themselves from what was going on. They were out there cheering and celebrating and abusing the hostages. I'm talking about the people on the streets. So this myth that Hamas is, is, is this kind of independent operation 
that has nothing to do with the population of Gaza is simply false. Now, that doesn't mean we should indiscriminately kill them. But it means that, that there's, there's a level of involvement culpability that goes a little bit beyond the there's just Hamas and all those innocents who have nothing to do with it. Elliot, I think that you have given us so much of your mind and energy and power, and we are so grateful for it. Uh, you answered so many questions. I think you sent so many people home feeling a little safer and having a lot more clarity on what's going on. So many of us are feeling extremely sympathetic uh, because that's in our nature as Jews, as Americans, as people in Western societies, you know, wherever we may have come from. And so it's really uh, empowering and strengthening to hear from your expert mind. So thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. I am going to, first of all, um, Elliot, I would love for us to be in touch just about, uh, re, uh, we are having a lot of questions who want to know if we could release the recording from this. No problem. Excellent. So be with us on the Tribe Tel Aviv Facebook. We'll notify about how we're going to get the materials up. And um, thank you again, Elliot. Whoever would like to stay on from our community and have a little bit more discussion as we usually get to have at our in-person Sunset Series events, you're welcome to stay. And we'll try to create the social as much as possible right here in Zoom. Elliot, you can stay with us as well. But for now, thank you so much for giving us your time. My pleasure. I'll stay for a few more minutes. Okay, great. So I welcome everyone to turn on your uh, video and your microphone. And and I think I'm going to get myself a glass of that as well, Elliot. Looks like you've got a nice glass of wine there. I think I'm going to have to make kiddush for myself. Um, you know, re reality yeah. is a function of alcohol deficiency. <laughs> So whoever wants to jump in and just share, whether it be your thoughts, your feelings, uh, what's coming up for you, I welcome you all to to either chime in with your mic or with your video or both. Um, well, Elliot, okay. Elliot, Elliot, I guess, um, I, you know, on everyone's mind is, you know, how are these guys going to walk into that uh, trap uh, of Gaza. You know, it's, uh, they've been preparing for this. Okay, so I, I think that what we're going to see, different from what we've seen in the past, is the use of a lot more fire than we have used up until now. In other words, what we've, We've always, and I'm talking about in operations in, in Lebanon and in Gaza and in the West Bank, uh, we've always kept our, our fire levels relatively low. Now, it doesn't look like that way. If, if, you, if you're not familiar with warfare, it all looks like hell and, and for a good reason. But I think we're going to be going in with, with far more tank fire, uh, far more, more artillery and tank and air response. In other words, Fire coming out of a building is not going to be met with precision small arms. It's going to be met with much heavier fire response. And the result of that is going to be more destruction and relatively lower casualties on our on our part. 
And how do you go into the bunkers that are underneath the hospitals? Um, once again, the Hamas bunkers, go, I should. You, uh, I, uh, right. You can go in delicately and you can go in heavily. Um, look, I'll, I'll give you a very, very simple example. The standard procedure for any army in the world, the standard procedure for going into a room in a hostile area is to start by throwing in one or two hand grenades. We have not done that in the past, even though that is absolutely standard infantry procedure. You can read it in, Amer in American U.S. Army field manuals. We wouldn't do that for fear of non-combatants being there. It's my belief that we are going to start using standard procedure. And I use that just as an example. In other words, lead with fire, not lead with sticking our heads in and seeing who's there. Thank you. Um, we actually have a video editor, Adam Danzger, who wants to edit some some short clips from your talk, Elliot, because he thought that you had such brilliant um, such brilliant clips. So, Adam, just get in touch with me. I'm going to put my uh, email address in the chat and get in touch with me, and we'll discuss that. Um, in the meantime, we had some discussion in the chat about Saudi Arabia. I noticed a couple of people saying that a country that has been so um, forward about wanting peace with Israel and wanting to work with Israel has been silent this week. Also, someone else is discussing where is Saudi Arabia putting their money? Are were, were they responsible for Hamas having all of these arms? Do you want to take that question? Sure. First of all, Hamas is backed by Iran, not by Saudi Arabia. But let's start with that. 100%. And you know what? Let me, let me add another point to this uh, because I've, I've seen another uh, indirect backing myth that needs to explode it. And that is that the, the money, the $6 billion that the Biden administration gave to Iran, which I think is absurd, I, th I think it's, it's folly, had nothing to do with what happened this past weekend, just a week ago. Okay. In other words, that that's its own issue. This is its issue. They're unconnected in terms of direct result. Uh, as well, American arms left behind in Afghanistan had nothing to do with what happened here. Anybody who watches any of the clips closely, including one that came out today of what of the equipment that was captured from the the terrorists who were here, it is all Russian style equipment. The weapons are all AK-47s. The rocket launchers are all RPGs. In other words, they're not all made in Russia, but they're all Russian equipment, not American equipment. So that doesn't mean it was good that America left a, a ton of stuff behind to the Taliban, but that wasn't what was used a week and a half ago. Uh, the Saudis are an interesting case that is paralleled by other countries like Morocco, um, and some others as well. The let me stick with the Saudis. The Saudis are are caught on the horns of a dilemma, and I say this analytically, not not in any way uh, supporting them. I, I I think it's an extremely problematic regime. But they're American allied. They are a leading Arab Muslim country. 
they they own the big two. We could argue three, including Al-Aqsa, but the big two of Mecca and Medina for the for the Muslim world, and they are essentially the home of Sunni Islam. Uh, Sunni theology is is in Cairo in Egypt, uh, but Sunni sort of geography is Saudi Arabia. They're terrified of the Iranians, and, and, and let's also understand the Iranians are not Arabs. What's going on between Iran and Saudi Arabia, Iran and the Emirates, Iran and other places, is not an inter-Arab conflict, it's a Persian-Arab conflict. And that has its own gestalt. Again, it's all talk in and of itself. But it's not a coincidence that the Iranians are playing the Shiite card in places like Iraq and Lebanon, because they can't play an Arab card in those places. They're not Arabs. And with all of that, the Saudis would like very much to rely on the United States and Israel as a bulwark against the Iranians, who've been attacking them directly and indirectly through the, the Houthi rebels in Yemen for, for quite a number of years now. So the the deal that was being sort of pulled together would have helped the, the Saudis tremendously in that way. Because also, let's face it, Saudi Arabia and Israel have had informal and indirect relations now for a number of years. But now here's the problem. And this is a problem across the Arab world. They've been teaching hatred of Israel for so long that it's very, very difficult for the regime now to flip around and deal with its own population. It can do it in quiet, let's say in a country like Saudi Arabia, but not while we're going into Gaza. So they're stuck. And which is why the Saudi crown prince told Blinken, he's got to stop Israel before it goes into Gaza. Well, the Americans aren't stopping us but he has to make the statement. He's got to come out on the side of Hamas in this case, uh, because otherwise his population might, might rise up against him. By the way, that's one of the reasons that Morocco, a few weeks ago, refused to accept Israeli aid after the earthquake. Because the Moroccan population is extremely anti-Israel as, 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 a, as a group, and the regime couldn't afford to bring in an Israeli team while that was going on in the immediate aftermath of what had happened in Tunisia with their foreign minister meeting with our foreign minister and she having to flee the country as a result. Okay, in other words, there are circles within circles here that it's an extremely complex situation. And when we say a country, let's also keep in mind, we those of us who come from Western-style democracies very often have a hard time internalizing this. Uh, we may not agree with our governments, but we're far from overthrowing our regimes. We identify in general with the system. That's not true with a good part of the world. The system and the population are two entirely separate groups. And in many cases, the primary threat to the system is its own population. So in countries like Saudi Arabia, they're much more concerned with how something is going to look to their people, which may end up getting them all killed. I'm talking about getting all the leaders killed. Uh, than, 
grand politics. So I, th I think that's what we're, what we're seeing with the Saudis at, at the moment and, and with what's going on in Gaza. Will it be able to be pulled together? We'll see. We'll see after it's all over. So wow, so thorough. Jonathan, Rabbi Feldman? So Elliot, if you were Prime Minister of Israel, what would you do? Resign. <laughs> <laughs> what would I do in, in what circumstance? Uh, going forward, what's the game plan? Who do you put in charge of Gaza? Um, ah. How do you... Uh, Look, first of all, the, uh, do you go after Hezbollah because we're going to have to ah. deal with them eventually anyway? Okay, good. Um, is this a chance to hit Iran? Uh, America's got our backs. Uh, draw Hezbollah into a conflict so that America can hit them on the flank. I assume America doesn't forget 1982 when they killed 300 Marines. Um, um, okay, so first of all, let, let's let's take them one step at a time. This idea that we need that we have some sort of we should have some sort of concrete day after plan in Gaza, I think is nonsense. I think we need to be able to go in there and operate based on whatever the outcome is when we get there. I wouldn't put the cart before the horse. First destroy Hamas and then see what goes on next. As far as I'm concerned, let the Egyptians come in and, and deal with it. Uh, I would not stay in there. I've, I've been there enough times and long enough. If I never see Jabalia refugee camp again for the rest of my life, it'll be too soon. Um, or Nusayrat or, or Insultan, or I can give you a whole list of them that I, I, that I would rather never see again in my life. You, you probably had night views, huh? All lit Sorry? up. You probably had night view all lit up like Paris. That's it. That's it. Um, go in, clean it up, get out. That's that's first of all. Depending on how quickly, cleanly, smoothly, and absolutely that happens, yeah, I think that's, that drawing Hezbollah into a fight afterwards or at the tail end makes strategic sense. Doing it simultaneously does not make strategic sense. A two-front war is a nightmare under the best of circumstances. And, you know, Churchill said, everybody knows how to start a war. Nobody, nobody has to, knows how to end one of these damn things. So I, I would be very, very careful and cautious uh, about biting, biting off more than we can show, or more than we can show. But I would say stay focused. Hamas, they gave us the, the reason. It's not even an excuse. Go in and do it. And then assess. Uh, I, I wouldn't plan stage two before I finish stage one. I mean, I, I would have plans for it. Don't, don't misunderstand. But I, I wouldn't plan it in the sense of we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. It's also it's my personal belief that the more a plan or a policy looks like a Rube Goldberg contraption, the more likely it's going to fail someone. Thank you so much. I think everyone's just blown away by all of what you shared. Um, and it's also a heavy topic. And a lot of people have been 
just caught between not being able to talk about this enough and also just wanting to sit quietly um, in ponderment, pondering. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Elliot. Thank you, everyone. Um, I'm pretty sure that we're all clear. So thank you for joining us. And if anyone would like to see clips and recordings, you can reach out to me at my email, but I'll also be publishing them on the Tribe Tel Aviv Facebook and Instagram page as well. So um, anybody wants to be in touch with me, Rabbi Feldman has my contact. That's very kind, Elliot. Thank you so much. And if anyone wants to unmute and give your own back uh, seat quarterback uh, uh, ideas of how you would, uh, you know, fix the world and Israel and its enemies, uh, feel free. (laughs) I'm going to bow out at this point. Thank you, Elliot. Good night. Okay, I'll try and put I'll put up Elliot's email. Let me find it for you. Someone asked for Elliot's email. I'll say that um, if you're talking about solutions, Rabbi Feldman, I think we each need to be just trying to focus on positivity. And uh, it's very hard, of course, but we need to spread our message of goodness. We need to encourage one another. There's nothing that is going to be achieved through personal punishment, which is something that a lot of my friends and colleagues have expressed to me in one way or another is um, people are finding ways to punish themselves because they feel badly about what happened to our brothers and sisters in the south of Israel. And so I know a lot of people are not eating, exercising, they're only reading uh, disturbing news, they're they're consuming media and disturbing images, and some people are feeling bad, some people are up all night, some people are not sleeping, and I just want to remind everyone that there is absolutely no honor in treating yourself poorly because we as a nation are going through something bad. And in fact, we all need to be as strong and as best as we can, because as you as you heard Elliot say, we were attacked when we were at our weakest. So we need all of you to find the strength to be your best version of you, even in this terrible time. So I just encourage everyone not to self-destruct. Yeah, I mean... um. I, the, the blog I wrote this week, when I went to the hospital, I was shocked how Israel, and this was two days later, they were, I wouldn't say they were going about business, but they were acting purposefully. In other words, they weren't acting crushed. There wasn't kind of like a, you know, cloud hanging over their heads. They were purposeful. They're like, okay, we've been hit. You know, I said, we've been broken, but not shattered. And we're going to pick up. And now, do we need to do? And that's very much kind of the Israelis, which is a healthy response. I mean, there is the grieving and there is the feeling of it, but not to the point, as you say, of being paralyzed or certainly not um, self-destructive. So thanks for that, Shannon. Yeah. Of course. Anyone else if you have some thoughts about that? How do you, you know, how do you process something that's unprocessable? Yeah. But that could be for another, for another session.
All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank okay. you, Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Thank you to everyone who came Thank on. You all. Thank you, Shana. Have a good night, everyone.